isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. Want to thank all of you out there for joining us. We're going to see you back here next You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast, and I'm your host, Jane Whitney. Once, as Ronald Reagan famously said, America was seen as a shining city on a hill, a beacon for freedom and democracy that illuminated the world. Now that once preeminent standing is under siege, mired in a perfect storm of geopolitical cross-currents and a deadly pandemic. On this episode of the podcast, we'll focus on how America's foreign policy is impacting our safety, our prestige, and our prosperity. Helping us to do that will be three distinguished guests, former Secretary of State during the Clinton administration and the original Madam Secretary, Madeleine Albright, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, and former Undersecretary of State and lead negotiator for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, Ambassador Wendy Sherman. Our conversation was recorded live during a virtual town hall on August 16, 2020. We had a lot of viewer questions submitted, and they were basically a variation on the same theme, which has to do with how the November election is going to impact U.S. foreign policy. And we will be talking about that a little later on. But first, we want to get to how you see America's standing in the world today. And Madam Secretary, I'm going to start with you. Since 2016, America has suffered the greatest decline in global confidence of any nation. Now, we've been at a low ebb before in terms of the way the world sees us. I guess Vietnam, the Iraq War, there have been other times. But people think this time is different. Is it different? Uh, well, I do think it's different. We are definitely not the shining city on the hill. Uh, we are not providing a good example of how a democracy really reflects the wishes of the people. And you were talking about the role of the press in a number of different aspects. We are unpredictable uh, or we are AWOL. And so I think that it is very hard to describe exactly what we are doing. I know we will probably talk about the recent agreement between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, because I think that is an important decision that was taken, but for the most part, I find it very hard to describe what we're doing because of the unpredictability and the lack of interest in how we are viewed in the world by those that are interested in how democracies function, uh, what is the role of the press, how do we obey our own laws. And so it is not a good time. I was very, very proud to sit behind a sign that says the United States. And I think it is very unclear as to what role we are playing and what we would like to be seen as. About a year ago, you testified before, I guess, the House Relations Committee, and you talked about the fact that at that point you were giving uh, the Trump administration an incomplete. You're also a Georgetown professor, so you, that was your grade, incomplete at that point. Would you change the grade now? Well, I think that um, I would be thinking about it. I would still have incomplete, though time is pretty much up. Uh, but I do think that I would give it a grade below C because of what it has accomplished. I must say I am fascinated 
by what has just happened in the Middle East. And so uh, I might write a comment saying, uh, I would be interested to know what your motivation was in this. I wish you had explained it better and what your preparation was and whether you had any uh, respect for the things that have been done before you came into office, since we do know that no foreign policies are only four-year policies. But I definitely would not give uh, a good grade. Senator Murphy, you've been quoted as saying at a conference at the Center for American Progress that the world is on fire and in many cases, Mr. Trump is the arsonist. You also were asked last June on MSNBC to give the Trump administration a grade one to 10, with 10 being the worst, how you would assess their foreign policy. And your answer was 2000. So how do you think we're, we're looking to the world right now? Yeah, maybe I'm a, a tougher grader uh, than uh, Secretary Albright, uh, but I think she <laughs> Obviously. has it. I think she has it right. I mean, by and large, um, you can describe the foreign policy of the Trump administration as aimless. There is no strategy. There is no direction. And to the extent there is consistency, uh, the consistency is in America's withdrawal from the world. Uh, we simply aren't a force for good in the way that we have been historically, frankly, under Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. It was the United States leading the fight to protect human rights abroad. It was the United States that was standing up for pro-democracy protesters all over the world. Um, today, we have an administration that cozies up to dictators, uh, that helps uh, countries that are sliding away from democracy uh, expedite that ascent. Uh, and, um, you know, as you start to sort of roll up American multilateralism, uh, then the example that you set um, matters more. If you're not making policy with friends, then you better be pretty strong on your own. And I think, as we'll talk about over the course of this time together, Jane, what has happened to U.S. credibility just over the last four to five months um, is really um, uh, difficult to explain. Uh, at a moment when we were already withdrawing from the world stage, uh, we now are seen as the one nation that is unable to get our hands wrapped around a virus that most other countries, whether they be democracies or autocracies, were able to manage much better than the United States. And I think um, this mismanagement of coronavirus comes at a really terrible time for the United States, a moment when lots of other countries are already starting to make plans without us. Uh, we now are, uh, are effectively um, creating even more reason, even more advertisement for nations to look other places. Senator Murphy, talking about withdrawing, America first, we're not part of the collective anymore. We're not a team player. During the pandemic, that's become very, very obvious. It's one of the really glaring times in recent history where we haven't taken a leadership role. What does that say to the rest of the world? Well, Secretary Sherman can talk about the 
uh, effort that the Obama administration undertook uh, when Ebola was threatening to ravage this country. Uh, we had two deaths in the United States. And a big part of the reason was that we understood that the response to Ebola was not just about what we did here, that there was no travel ban that was going to be able to save us. And so we deployed billions of dollars worth of resources to Africa all over the world to make sure that we stopped at other places so that it wouldn't arrive here. Um, we are unable to take that approach today because we have countries that don't want us, that don't welcome us, and our withdrawal from the WHO uh, effectively eviscerates our ability to stand up that global response to coronavirus. Um, and so um, this is just a complete misunderstanding of how you tackle a pandemic. Yes, you have to have enough equipment and medical supplies. You need to stand up a public health response domestically. But so long as coronavirus exists in a refugee camp on the other side of the world, we are never safe. And what scares me to death is that even if we are able to turn the corner sometime in 2021, um, we have lost so much time standing up that international response that the Obama administration did on Ebola um, that that's hard to replicate and get back. Ambassador Sherman, you're also a tough grader because you recently wrote a piece called The Total Destruction of U.S. Foreign Policy Under Trump, or words to that effect. And you basically looked at how we have not met the global threats that we need, including the pandemic. I have to ask you, though, Donald Trump was elected by a lot of people because they saw him as a disruptor. They saw him as somebody who was gonna take on this notion that we are the world's policemen, that uh, he was going to rail against being exploited and manipulated, that, that he was gonna crack heads in effect. So there's definitely uh, an appetite out there for that particular brand of, of methodology. Now, you could say that when he went to the NATO allies and was pressing for more money from them uh, to spend more on defense, that it was maybe irritating, annoying, whatever adjective you want to pick. The point is he did get results. So the question becomes, is there any upside to his particular style? Well, um, great to be with you, Jane. Great to be with Secretary Albright and with Senator Murphy. Look, we're at a very tough time, as uh, everyone has said on this screen so far today. Um, we've got people in our own country who are very afraid uh, because of COVID, the coronavirus, because of the economic downturn, uh, people not having jobs, worried about where food's gonna come from, whether their kids get to go to school. Um, and on top of that, tremendous uh, racial and social injustice that has been laid even more bare uh, by the coronavirus, when we see the disparity in mortality and the disparity in who gets hit by this economic downturn. So people are in a very anxious place and they do wanna focus on our country more than they wanna focus abroad. Uh, and I think we all understand that, but what my colleagues have pointed out is because we don't think about the rest of the world, we end up hurting ourselves. Because as Senator Murphy said, if coronavirus remains in another country, it can get on an airplane and boomerang back to our country. Uh, when we are concerned about whether everybody's paying their fair share around the world, um, why are we becoming more friends with Russia than we are with our European allies who have always stood with us? And just as a factual matter, uh, and both Secretary Albright and Senator Murphy can talk to this extremely well because they know Europe so amazingly well. 
Um, the fact is that every president has gotten more money. And this money that gets talked about regarding NATO is about a commitment that NATO members made to each other by 2024 to try to reach 2% of their budgets being spent on defense. But it wasn't dues. It's not an expected have to do payment. It was a pledge and people are making progress towards that pledge, maybe not as fast as we would like them to. And everybody wants to make sure there's burden sharing. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican or an independent, you want burden sharing. But what everyone is pointing out here today is quite frankly, we are the world's greatest economy. We are the world's strongest military power. We are a country that is the strongest democracy, or at least we have been. And so therefore, many people in the world look to us, as you pointed out, Jane, at the beginning of this, they used to look at us as that beacon on the hill. Now we don't even represent our own values in the way that we go about things. We didn't stand with the people of Hong Kong. We haven't stood with the Uyghurs in China. We haven't stood really with right. the people who are facing hardships in Venezuela. And we certainly aren't standing with the many millions on the streets in Belarus today uh, protesting what was clearly not a free and fair election when Lukashenko was ostensibly just elected. Ambassador Sherman, you've jumped the gun a little bit in terms of my game plan, which was to really address the whole issue of why foreign policy matters. A lot of people think it's an expensive um, distraction. I think Mr. Trump feels that way sometimes, that we really, as you said earlier, we've got so many problems here. What would you say to somebody who doesn't know who the Uyghurs are, who doesn't know uh, where a lot of these, the, these issues are, are really blowing up around the world? Why should people care about what's happening around the world? Most people think that we spend about 40% of our budget on aid to other countries. It's really not even 1% of the budget. It's very little. And to go back to the point that Senator Murphy made about Ebola, it was not only money that we gave, and it was not only our logistical support from our extraordinary military that kept the problem over there, as opposed to in our own country, but because we had spent a little bit of money helping Nigeria to train nurses. Nigeria sent 200 nurses to Sierra Leone to help deal with Ebola. And that meant resources within the continent of Africa as opposed to American resources. So we invest abroad to take care of us. We invest abroad because we want to make sure that conflict doesn't draw in our blood and treasure, that we don't have to send our young men and women abroad to fight in wars or to create conflicts. We deal on climate change globally because we want to make sure that we don't create climate migrants, people who can no longer live where they once lived because there is no water, the temperatures are too hot, the extremes are too bad, so they start migrating up. We know one of the big issues that Europe faced, that we have faced, is when there is conflict in other places, People want to come here, and we are a country of immigrants and proud of it, or at least we have been proud of it. And now Donald Trump has pulled up the bridges and said you can't come here anymore, when in fact we have to innovate, we have to move into the future, 
And we do that by bringing the best talent in our own country and the best talent from around the world. Secretary Albright and I both are professors. We teach as well as do many other things in the world. I teach at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Half of my students are from other countries and they love America. They are bringing their brains, their innovation together with our innovation so that we can solve some really tough problems, including how we're gonna deal with the coronavirus. Before we get too far afield, I want to go back to you, Madam Secretary, because there has been an August surprise. You've made reference to it already during the broadcast. And uh, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman is hailing the deal between Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, as a geopolitical earthquake, an enormous breakthrough. Do you share that sentiment? Uh I actually do think it's a big breakthrough, but can I just add to something on the last part is I think that it is very hard to explain foreign policy to an American domestic audience. It is the responsibility of every president to protect our people, our territory and our way of life. But the way that we all understand it um, on this program and those of us that are interested in foreign policy, it does require uh, action by others and for us to care about all this. Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in an ism. But I think that it requires us to understand partnerships and that there really are issues now. Um, and we've all tried to explain foreign policy to um, the American public. And I try to make it less foreign in order to try to explain why we should care about places that many people can't find on a map, certainly the president can't, and uh, names that they don't know. So I do think we need to consider how we explain the importance of foreign policy. So on what you asked me, by the way, I worked for a president who read a lot and he assigned us books. And one that President Clinton assigned to me was called The Peace to End All Peace, which is written by an American historian, David Frumkin, about the history of the Middle East after World War One, And the short version of the book is that the modern Middle East was created uh, by the British and French bureaucracies lying to each other. And it is a very complex place in terms of the some of the artificial countries that were set up, a variety of problems that exist that most Americans didn't know anything about Islam, much less the difference between Shia and Sunni, long struggles between the Persians and the Arabs and all those things. The issue of the Palestinians, to a great extent, has been central to American foreign policy for a long time. And what has happened is that that uh, the Palestinians, we probably talk about this, have been behaving in ways that makes it hard to make a deal with them. We are very close to our, the Israelis uh, in terms of uh, history and, and our support for the state of Israel. And I do think that we have in the past celebrated agreements between Israel um, and Arab countries, um, the one with Jordan and Egypt. And so it is kind of seen as part of a trifecta. It is important. It didn't happen overnight, frankly. There have been contacts that have been going on. Um, and I do think that it is a very uh, seismic difference. The question is how it will play out, uh, What, whether there are already kind of statements by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is indicating that one of the issues, which was annexation, isn't um, 
totally off uh, the map, uh, that he is reconsidering a variety of things. And so the question will be how this is carried out, what will happen in terms of the Palestinians, and what about the other issues that are taking place um, in the Middle East, where, in fact, every morning when I wake up, I have to figure out who's on whose side today, um, and questions about the influence of the Russians all of a sudden, and uh, what the Turks are doing, and uh, the, the conflicts within the, the region itself. But I do think that this was something that was certainly uh, worth noticing in the messes that are going on everywhere else. And it is being described as the August surprise. So I think we need to take it into consideration. And back to grading, I do think that even a, stu a bad student, if he, she comes up with something towards the end of the semester, you try to figure out where it came from. And if it's, this is something that is only useful in order to get a recommendation to go somewhere, or whether in fact it is a, it is in fact a change, and so I find it very interesting, and the timing of it interesting. Senator Murphy, you have been described by I guess it was Vox in a profile as somebody who could be a foreign policy evangelist. That you have the ability and the propensity to try and make people care about foreign policy. So I want to get your reaction to that first, but I also want to get your take on what's happened on this on this August surprise. Well, you know, I think as we try to explain to people why foreign policy matters, it is important to explain that the best American foreign policy is a strong America. Uh, right when our economy is stronger, we are better positioned internationally. When our democracy is hardened and performing well, um, then we have more influence abroad. Uh, and so it is not mutually exclusive for us to spend the majority of our attention on perfecting our own nation while also understanding that influence in the rest of the world cannot be avoided at a moment when our economies are interlocked and there are plenty of countries overseas who are trying to do damage to us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's, I think Secretary Albright is right. It is difficult uh, to explain the utility of foreign policy. But uh, frankly, if you're just spending time making sure more Americans have health care or that everybody has the right to vote or that wages are going up, uh, that, frankly, is brightening the American star, which has always been the thing that attracts other nations to us. Um, I agree with Secretary Albright that this is a very important development, what has been announced. Um, and it is, as she pointed out, I think a, a point on a line. Uh, we have been gradually erasing or at least dulling this long-term schism between Israel uh, and Sunni Arab nations uh, that for m much of the last half century defined much of the politics in that region. But that erasure is happening, not just because of good, tough diplomatic work that has been undertaken by multiple U.S. administrations, but also because another defining fissure is um, becoming more important in the region. And that is the fissure between uh, Iran, uh, Sunni nations, uh, and Israel. And so as we, I think, rightfully applaud any measures that seek to bring Israel together with countries like the UAE, we have to understand that one of the reasons that they are being brought together is because the divide, uh, often a deadly divide, is uh, widening. Uh, 
between Iran and its neighbors. And that divide may ultimately lead to a nuclear armed Middle East. That divide is currently leading to um, millions being killed in places like Yemen and Syria. Uh, and so I want to make sure that as we head into this next administration, uh, we not only try to facilitate that detente between the Gulf nations and Israel, but we also step back and have a real tough conversation about where we want to be positioned when it comes to the growing set of proxy wars between the Iranians and the Saudis and the Emiratis, um, and whether we really have a dog in that fight in the way that this president would like us to believe. I think it was uh, a correspondent at the Financial Times who said that looking at the Trump foreign policy is like trying to find symmetry in a bowl of spaghetti. Just spend a minute talking about how uncertainty and chaos, uh, Secretary Albright, if you would just spend a minute talking about how that impacts this whole picture. Well, I think that there is a, always kind of a theory that being unpredictable um, is, is actually a good trick in foreign policy. You can be unpredictable once or twice, but you can't be always unpredictable because in fact, uh, you do need to have functioning relationships with a number of countries, either your partners um, in a trade deal or something that has to do with arms control or very specific relationships between two countries. And so, the, the system depends on a certain amount of predictability in relationships between and among countries. And so I think it makes it very hard, and we've now all said that actually we are stronger when we can deal with other countries and that we need the help of other countries to deal with whether it's the virus or the economy or climate change or just any specific problem of a an American citizen that might be um, stuck in some other country and can't get home. So uh, I, we need to have that, and that is missing. And one of the reasons it's also missing is that we don't have enough, di you actually need diplomats to do diplomacy, and you can't operate on the basis of just unpredictability. And that is what's worrisome, because if we have, uh, when we used to be able to travel abroad, and I'm spending a lot of time on Zoom with a number of people from different countries, and they actually want to know where we're going. What are we thinking? We don't understand um, where you think you are in terms of the relationships with pick the country. Um, and we need some of that. And, and I think that there is not enough respect for how the international system functions. And it does base, it is based a lot on personal relationships, but an awful lot of understanding where a country is going. I, for instance, you were talking about Senator Murphy. One of the great things is that we have had uh, relationships with uh, parliamentarians where we have sent our best members of Congress to go and talk to um, parliamentary members in other countries because of the way their system is set up um, and the importance of them being able to explain us abroad. So I am very worried about the unpredictability, the constant unpredictability of our policy. Um, and often it doesn't jibe with the documents that the administration has even put out or what is said every other day, um, either by the president or by some of his representatives. So it's kind of catch as catch can. I think it is makes very, very complicated what is already complicated. Um, I say the world is a mess and that's a diplomatic term of art.
That was Secretary Madeleine Albright, and you're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return, and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. I'm Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on August 16th, 2020. Our guests are former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Senator Chris Murphy, and former Undersecretary of State Wendy Sherman. We are going to move on to a very exciting moment here at Conversations on the Green. For the first time during our season, we are taking a live phone call and my dog has walked in. Um, let's 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 uh, start with start with the phone call. I understand we have Julie from New Milford on the line. Julie, are you there? I'm here. Yes. Given what I'm hearing about the erosion in our image as a shining city on the hill, is there a country, particularly a major power today, that you regard as more effective than the U.S. in successfully pursuing its foreign policy goals? Hmm with much more cohesion, more consistency, and ultimately more success than our country does today. Thank you. Let's have Ambassador Sherman take that question. Well, I think the obvious answer to that is our growing concern about China. Uh, China takes a very long view about its strategic goals. And as Secretary Albright and Senator Murphy have said, the U.S. is really about tactics not about strategy. Uh, And so um, the president tends to do this and then he does that, as uh, Secretary Albright said, stays unpredictable. Um, But there's no overall strategy. There's no set of clear goals that we're pursuing day in, day out. And as the secretary pointed out, we don't have the diplomats. We don't even have the people in the Pentagon or in the intelligence agencies to really help us get these things done or in the development community. China, on the other hand, under Xi Jinping, who has now made himself president for life, there is a very clear set of goals. They want to become not only our competitor, but they want to become the leader of the world on their terms, by their rules. Uh, They are building their economy. They are innovating. They're investing in infrastructure. They're investing all around the world. Now, the way they invest around the world doesn't always work. They give loans to many countries in Africa, bring in Chinese to do the work, um, don't really care about human rights or anything else. Their values are quite different, but they're very purposeful, very intentional, very strategic. And I think whoever is president next, and obviously I'm not a fan of President Trump, so I hope that President Biden wins, uh, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden. But nonetheless, whoever is president is going to have to invest in America, so that we can compete with China, we can confront and challenge China whenever and however we must, but at the same time also find those areas, perhaps non-proliferation, perhaps climate change, uh, pandemics, where we can cooperate. But it's gonna be probably an essential relationship going forward, and they are very intentional about what they're doing. Let me get your take on this because I'm a little confused. Increasingly, polls show that Americans are very concerned about China. Yet I've spoken with fans of Mr. Trump's, honestly, who say that he's gotten tough on China, he's reset the relationship, 
and that things are better than they used to be with China. Other people say we've gotten played by China. Where do you net out? Well, I think we don't have a strategy for China. The president's approach to China has basically, in the first instance, been to put tariffs on. Tariffs are the president's favorite instrument, but as I'm sure Senator Murphy can wax eloquent about, that taxes American consumers. It really doesn't tax China. Uh, and those tariffs were supposed to bring in all kinds of goods to the United States, which really haven't shown up, partly because of the coronavirus, but partly because it really was never enforced. That plan one, the first plan of tariffs, never really got consummated or followed through on. And we haven't seen an economic strategy to really take on China, nor the investments in um, uh, intelligence here in the United States, in quantum computing, in AI. None of those things have happened here in cybersecurity to really make us be able to compete with China. So I think we have a very long way to go. The president is very good at sounding tough, at touching the rage that people have, the fear that people have, that people are getting ahead of us, that people are taking advantage of us. But one can also lead by going not only with hope, but with results. Uh, with really showing what we can get done by investing in America in a way that makes us stronger, makes our democracy stronger, our economy stronger, our military ready for the challenges of the 21st century, not the 20th century. And none of that strategic positioning, none of those investments have really been made, in my view, by this administration. Senator Murphy, we're going to take our first video question of the show in a minute, but I want to, do you have a reaction to what Ambassador Sherman just said about trade and about China? Well, I, I do. I share her view. I mean, I think we've gotten our clock cleaned by China. You know, one credible estimate suggests that we lost 300,000 jobs in this country because of Trump's misguided tariffs. And the deal that he signed that was the result of those tariffs doesn't win back um, a smidgen of the jobs that were already lost. What else have we gotten from China? They haven't helped us at all consummate an agreement with North Korea. Uh, their belligerent military activity continues uh, in the South China Sea. Um, there has been no demonstrable progress made. And part of the reason is that we just don't have the tools to fight the actual battles that exist with China today, right? We, we're, we're very proud, rightly so, of our military, but we are not currently shooting uh, at China. What we are is in a very real war over the future rules of the economic order globally. And China has already effectively lapped us with 5G. They're getting ready to do the same thing with 6G and advanced battery technology and artificial intelligence. And we have no industrial policy in the United States. What we should be doing is getting together with our European counterparts and jointly with the private sector, developing answers to the Chinese technology that they midwife domestically and then export uh, to the rest of the world. Um, a, today, we can't have those conversations with the Europeans because Trump has broken our ability to talk with them. But B, we haven't recognized the fact that the only way to fight China is to really develop these new capacities that we uh, that we don't have. Uh, so I, I think it is important not just to have the grand strategy, but to recognize um, that if we don't invest in the foreign policy toolkit 
other than the Department of Defense, um, then there's really no way to meet China on the actual playing field where the battles are being fought. All right. Well, we were just in New Milford, Connecticut for a question. Now we're going to go to Germany for a video question. Hello, my name is Kai Malte Bischof and I'm greeting you from Germany. In Germany, many have the impression that America has politically retrenched from Europe. Where do you see the future of these once so close allies? Thank you. Secretary Albright, what do you think well, about I the future say, with our allies? Having been born in Europe, um, in Czechoslovakia, I kind of consider myself the epitome of the Euro-Atlantic relationship. Um, and it has to be rebuilt uh, in so many ways. I believe that we are natural um, allies in so many ways. We have very similar value systems. Um, and I do think that uh, we are going to have to try to figure out how to have something other than just a transactional relationship to figure out what we can do. As um, Senator Murphy mentioned, frankly, in terms of operating together and dealing with China, what are the other kind of partnerships that we can do? But it's going to take work. Um, and the Europeans have thought that we have taken them for granted in many ways. I have often compared our relationship with Europe that immediately after World War II, uh, they were like children that were sick and were willing to take any medicine that we wanted to give them. Then we had kind of a teenage relationship where they said, we're working together, where's our allowance? And we have never developed a, an adult relationship in terms of how we respect each other, operate together, try to figure out what are the things that we have in common. And it's going to take rebuilding in so many ways, not just through NATO, but trying to figure out what the US-EU relationship is and how can we deal with the issues that are out there, uh, the ones that are either related to um, COVID or to climate change or to arms control issues uh, and how we operate in the rest of the world. It has been a key relationship. It needs to be again. Uh, but we need to operate better, recognizing that we have gone through some very tough times, disrespectful, transactional, that has not really understood the strength of working together across the board. Ambassador Sherman, there are a lot of alliances that have been broken, battered, and will need to have attention paid. You were the lead negotiator on the 2015 nuclear deal. We have pulled out, I think it was Richard Haas, the veteran diplomat who called the Trump doctrine the withdrawal doctrine, which is basically get out of every single agreement from T, the alphabet soup of TPP uh, to the JPCOA, if I got that right, and uh, Open Skies Treaty, the Paris Climate Accord. There's a whole list of things that we've just bailed out of. There are a lot of people who say, well, in the future, if perhaps we have another administration, we can just sign up for those agreements again and we'll just snap back like a rubber band. Is that the way it works? Well, I wish it would work that way. I think um, really going back to what both the secretary and the senator said, we are seen right now as unpredictable and quite frankly, unreliable. And so, yes, do I think that a President Biden could possibly find a way to rejoin the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. You said it just right, JCPOA. Um, yes, but I think our European uh, partners will be wary uh, and will want to see that we're actually going to follow through and that it's going to stick for a while. 
And I think that's going to be true with everything. Um, fortunately, on the coronavirus, although President Trump has said he is withdrawing from the World Health Organization, not a perfect organization, but essential uh, for dealing with global health and certainly global pandemics, that won't occur until next summer. And so uh, we can decide that we're not going to withdraw and get back in. And every time we withdraw from one of these deals, we create a vacuum. And that means somebody's gonna fill that vacuum. In the WHO, it's likely to be China who will fill that vacuum. In the JCPOA, it is the European Union, but it is also Russia who is filling that vacuum. Because quite frankly, for Europe, Russia is very, very critical to their future security and their economic trade and development. So whenever we move out of these agreements, we leave a vacuum. Right now, there are discussions going on about whether the United States and Russia can agree to extend New START, which is an arms control agreement. Uh, I think that the Trump administration at the end of the day may well not do that before the deadline, which is coming very quickly. Uh, we will then be sending a signal to the world that arms control agreements are no longer something of interest to us. We've gotten out of the JCPOA. Uh, if we get out of New START, we left uh, the INF Treaty, another arms agreement with Russia. Uh, we left the Paris Climate Accord. All of these leave a vacuum for others to take leadership and as Senator Murphy said, to write the rules for the future and rules then we're going to have to live by that we were not the author of, that we did not have a seat at the table for. And so it's very concerning, this withdrawal, as Richard Haas has said. Um, and I think, you know, Secretary Albright famously said that when she said we were an indispensable nation, she never meant, therefore, that we were a nation who could act alone. We always do our best when we are acting with others, when we are leading with our strength, with our values, and with being that beacon on the hill. Could I just ask you, before I go to Senator Murphy, uh, on another issue with Iran, it's a personal question, Ambassador Sherman, to work on something like the JCPOA, and then have it, to watch it, um, just be sort of tossed away as inconsequential by an administration. Do you have hope that somehow it can be revived in a sense or reconstituted? Or is, I think that's, again, Richard Haas, we seem to be quoting him a lot, but that the moment of disruption reaches a point of no return sometimes. Well, yes, it could reach a point of no return, but um, you know, the book I wrote after all this is called Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power and Persistence. Uh, and um, I think that persistence is quite critical. World War I was called the war to end all wars. <clears throat> and a mere 20 years later, which is not very long in history, we had World War II. And so I learned a long time ago that um, particularly in diplomacy, there is rare, rarely a final success unless it is death and destruction. And that's not something any of us would hope for. And so we're gonna have to try and try again. Uh, what we did 
I think, kept the United States, importantly, and our partners and allies around the world safe for quite some time from Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon. Um, I feel badly for the hundreds, literally hundreds of people who worked to achieve that agreement in the United States and around the world. But I feel the worst for two groups, uh, the people of Iran who live under horrible circumstances and now their future is even more bleak. And I feel most worrisome for America's national security and for our national interests, which I don't think are well served by having withdrawn because uh, Iran is closer today to a nuclear weapon because it's increased its enrichment, the number of centrifuges. It hasn't stopped its malign behavior in the Middle East. I think the UAE-Israel agreement is part of creating a bulwark against Iran because they haven't stopped their malign behavior. Uh, the human rights abuses inside of Iran have gotten worse and Americans are continuously thrown in prison in Tehran. So nothing has gotten better. So at the end of the day, do I feel badly for everybody who worked on this, for President Obama, who really led the way on this? Absolutely. But I feel the worst for America, for our national security interests. Senator Murphy, let me follow up with you then on the issue of since 1979, there's been a very contentious relationship between the United States and Iran. There's been a fear lurking of direct contact with the direct strike, with the deadly, uh, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani in January. It sort of brought it out in the open. And now people are really concerned that this could sort of spiral into an all out war. Are you concerned about possible war between Iran and the United States? Well, I think you always have to be concerned about an unintentional set of events that spiral into war. Um, listen, I, I think that amongst the things that concerned me regarding uh, the strike on Qasem Soleimani was the fact that it was not authorized by Congress. Uh, this was uh, an assassination of a foreign leader. This was a bad guy who worked for a really bad regime. But that doesn't mean that the Constitution um, is invalidated. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that if we sort of set this precedent in which administrations can go around the world um, targeting foreign leaders without prior authorization from Congress, then I'm not sure what the point of the Article I foreign policy powers in the Constitution are. And so I think this is something that should uh, alarm both Republicans and Democrats. But as I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the reasons why we are today talking about a historic deal between the UAE and Israel, um, I do think we just have to step back and ask ourselves, are we really sure that we want to get firmly in bed with the Saudis in what is a growing set of proxy wars uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, Iran is not our friend, and we are going to have to find ways to contest their influence in the region. Um, but the rise of Saudi Arabia um, does not necessarily accrue to the benefit of the United States. It's Saudi Arabia and its affiliates that have often been the ones funneling money to a brand of Islam 
that forms the building block of extremist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. It's Saudi Arabia that is marching around the world, kidnapping dissenters, murdering American residents. Um, It's Saudi Arabia that has been pushing money into Salafist militias in places like Yemen and in Syria, creating chaos uh, space in which uh, militia groups that have designs against the United States can grow. Um, So I just think we have to just take a big step back here um, and reconsider what we want the American footprint to be when it comes to this ongoing contest between Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, other Sunni nations for regional hegemony. Um, And so to me, that is a much broader question of American strategy in the region. It doesn't mean stepping away from our efforts to try to draw down the influence of Iran. What is so tragic to me is that um, President Trump was teed up uh, to bring together a very unusual international coalition uh, to combat Iran's influence. Remember, the JCPOA was not just the United States and Europe. It was the United States, Europe, China, and Russia working together to, to enact this nuclear deal. President Trump could have then used that same coalition to try to um, uh, address Iran's ballistic missile program or their support for terrorist groups in the region. Instead, he threw all of that away. So I think we've got to try to reassemble as much of that coalition as we can and then decide for ourselves um, how heavy we want to throw in with the Saudis and whether it might make sense for us to step back and take um, a little bit less heavy handed or little or, or slightly more neutral role in some of these contests throughout the region. We're going to go to another video question right now. And Madam Secretary, since you, during your tenure, helped reshape the relationship between Russia and the United States, this one's for you. Hi, I'm Marie from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm interested in your perspective on how the U.S. should be dealing with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Well, all right. Um, I, I really think this is a basic question. I am kind of the product of a time when all our foreign policy was about how to deal, quote, with the Soviet Union. I think we have to um, take a, uh, an assessment of what is going on um, in Russia generally. Um, I have often said that um, most countries don't change their geographical location. Russia did. It has different borders than the Soviet Union had. Um, It is a country that um, has been going through a process of decline that is now under the leadership of former KGB officer. Um, They have very serious economic problems. Um, They also do not know how to relate to various parts of uh, Europe, um, especially Central and Eastern Europe that used to be part of their empire and also some of their issues um, in, in Asia. And so I believe it's essential for us to have a functioning relationship with them, but I think that we have to be very, very careful about the kinds of things that they're doing because they are trying to separate us from our allies. There's no question about that as one watches um, what has been going on in terms of infiltration and hacking of other democracies. They are trying to undermine our democracy and we have to be 
more vigilant about them. But I also believe, and, and I think that this is a tenor just generally, is that we need to recognize the fact that even with those that we, with whom we disagree, we have to have a functioning relationship. And the arms control issues that Wendy raised are very, very important. An awful lot of the way that we've operated has depended on the functioning of those arms controls. Um, I think we need to figure out uh, how we, what are the areas where we can find some cooperation with the Russians, um, for instance, on climate change, very worried about their activities in the Arctic. And, and so we have to have a functioning relationship with them, but be cognizant of the fact that Putin, I dealt with him, he is really smart and mean, and he is a former KGB officer. And we have to remember uh, what his modus operandi is that he did in Crimea, and I'm very concerned about some of the things that uh, sounds as though he's got some uh, influence in what is going on in Belarus, and so we have to be very careful about all of that, and generally the way he's undermining democracy in Europe uh, among our allies. Ambassador Sherman, you made mention in your piece um, about someday we may know what, what is the foundation of Mr. Trump's, beyond I think the mere envy of power was the way you put it, there, this, 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 I don't even know what you call it, some people call it a bromance. Um, do, you, do you speculate as to what that bond is founded on? Hard to know. Um, clearly there's something uh, and it's very strange, even this week, we heard the president say, we heard people from his administration, um, brief reporters saying that the president's pushing for a meeting with Putin uh, before the election. Why he would do want to do that is beyond me, except to get help from Putin. Um, today, National Security Advisor O'Brien, on one of the Sunday talk shows, tried to put a twist on it by saying, well, no, we're not planning it, but maybe we'll get to an arms control agreement and there will be a reason for him to come to Washington. Uh, I just can't imagine having Putin here in Washington before the election. Uh, I would find that more than strange, more concerning. People have speculated financial dealings, real estate development, um, some information about uh, the president that the rest of us aren't aware of. Um, but as I said in the piece that you're referring to, the president clearly has an envy of leaders who seem to have unbridled, at least authoritarian, if not dictatorial power. Uh, Vladimir Putin, as the secretary said, is one of them. I've met with him as well. He's very smart, very charming, very on his game very clear about and intentional about what he does in a meeting. Uh, the president uh, says he has a great relationship with Xi Jinping, who now is president for life. And in terms of bromance, Jane, uh, without a doubt, the greatest bromance. And we're going to hear in Bob Woodward's new book, uh, the many letters that have gone back and forth between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, the leader of North Korea, uh, that's a bromance uh, for the history books, for sure. Just before I move on to Senator Murphy, I want to ask you about something else you said, since you mentioned Kim Jong-un, which is that basically the foreign policy with North Korea amounts to a series of photo ops. There would be people who would argue, once again, that we're talking, that, that Mr. Trump flies by the seat of his pants 
and he he's transactional he's he's brash he's unpredictable he's he's all those things but ultimately he gets in the room he gets in the room with them is that worth anything well you know i supported his first meeting with kim jong-un in singapore uh, because uh, we've tried lots of things in the past and even though it's quite unusual to begin diplomacy at the top as opposed to working to get to the top um, i thought it was worth a shot but I thought it was worth a shot if it was part of a strategy, if there was a negotiating team ready to go, if they knew what their negotiating mandate was, that there was prior agreement, they were actually going to be able to negotiate. Well, that didn't happen out of Singapore. It didn't happen in Hanoi. It didn't happen uh, as they took a step back and forth across uh, the DMZ. So how many photo ops can you have before all you've really done is given credibility to a dictator and got nothing in return. Senator Murphy, I'm going to mix in a little bit of domestic, uh, domestic politics, domestic issue right now. People right now are on fire about the fact that the credibility, the confidence in our November elections is being undermined. Uh, on a variety of fronts, sort of going after vote by mail. Now this whole, I don't even know what to call it, um, firestorm over the Postal Service. Leaving that aside, nothing upends norms like seeking help from foreign governments to get elected or reelected. And we have mentioned Russia, but we also have the case of what John Bolton talked about, which was that um, Mr. Trump asked for help directly from President Xi to get reelected. And yet you don't get the sense anything is being done about it. I'm not saying it's for lack of trying, but you just feel like, like nothing is being done. Is something being done? <laughs> You know, it's really remarkable, Jane. When I got to Congress in 2007, uh, it was a heated political time, not substantially different than today. But one of the few things at that moment, and again, this is only 12 years ago, that Republicans and Democrats agreed on uh, was voting rights. In one of my early votes in the House of Representatives, we reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, the very act that was struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, today, we take it for granted that Republicans are openly trying to make it more difficult for people to vote, and Democrats are trying to help more people vote, as if that's a sort of normal political issue upon which there are two sides. For a very long time, there were not two sides on that question. Um, and so it just pains me to just sort of have the, the sort of both sides treatment uh, of this issue. And as you talked about, there is a very real issue about what's happening in the Postal Service today. And my hope is that we are going to convene hearings as early as next week uh, to bring uh, the Postmaster General and other officials before us to understand what's going on and to try to put pressure on them to stop any activities that are going to make it harder on people to vote. But as you mentioned, um, the intelligence services have disclosed, and so I can talk about it, that Russia has clear intent to try to influence this election uh, to benefit President Trump. Now, I think what's interesting is that in that same report, the intelligence services threw in their um, 
uh, estimate, uh, their guess, that uh, the Chinese and the Iranians um, might be more enthusiastic about uh, the election of Vice President Biden. Well, even if that were to be the case, there is only one country that has the capability, the intent, and the desire to influence the 2020 election, and that is Russia. Russia is playing as we speak in the American election. They are investing hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of dollars in that interference uh, operation. Um, and uh, what I am begging uh, this administration to do is be open and transparent with the American people about what they know about the Russian interference effort. I don't know why you spend billions of dollars uncovering information about foreign governments that are trying to interfere in an American election if you keep it all secret. You've got to be transparent about this so that when the American people hear somebody with a Ukrainian last name saying things about Vice President Biden, they know whether or not that person is a Russian agent. So we do have tools at our disposal. Um, I hope that Congress doesn't have to make this information uh, public because it should ultimately be the administration's decision. It is their responsibility. With all due respect, based on track record alone, why would we have any hope at all that there'd be any accountability? I know you've been a big advocate for transparency, trying to get things declassified that the American people should know about. And yet, once again, the stonewalling has been uh, fierce. So, so I know I, I don't expect you to necessarily have an answer to this, but people who are working very hard to ensure that there is a safe and fair election are very discouraged by what they hear. Well, and listen, this is ultimately one of the most difficult questions you encounter as a member of Congress. We have access to certain classified information um, and um, it is normally up to the administration to make decisions about when that becomes declassified. I, I will just say this. Um, it has been very clear for a long time that Russia uh, has um, in its interest uh, the re-election of President Trump. Um, they have been very clear for a long time about the narrative that they are trying to perpetuate. They are trying to spin about Vice President Biden and about Vice President Biden's family. And so when you hear people trying to insert that narrative about Burisma and about Biden family members into the political ecosystem in the United States, um, understand where it is likely coming from and understand what their objectives are. Donald Trump has been um, a windfall for Russian interests, and they know uh, that they will get four more years of expanded influence of disintegration of the transatlantic alliance if he's reelected. I know we have Kate standing by on the line, but I, I'm going to ask the control room if we could rack up the next video question because I'd like Ambassador Sherman to take a crack at that. So here we have another video question. Hi, my name's Beth from San Antonio, Texas. My husband and I were both in the U.S. military, and we'd love to hear your perspective on the proper role of the military in U.S. foreign policy. Ambassador Sherman. First of all, thank you and thank your husband for your service. And I say that to everybody who stands in harm's way for us to keep us safe. I thank the diplomats, the intelligence community, the development officers, everyone who serves to strengthen and protect our lives, uh, our very treasure. So thank you very much for your service. I think our military is the 
backbone of our strength. I think it's incredibly important that we invest in our military, that we invest in the men and women of our military. Um, there was a story out today that I think was maybe uh, didn't come out quite right, but gave me concern that Secretary Esper was looking at cutting health benefits uh, for or health care for the military, which I found just extraordinary because we have to invest in the young men and women who serve us every single day. Um, one of the things we've tried to do at the Kennedy School is increase the number of active duty military and former military who can come to the Kennedy School because we believe that the having a civilian military dialogue, talking with each other, understanding each other is very critical because I think we've created divide, a divide over the years, um, particularly in these times when our police are often dressed in camouflage and have heavy weapons, the kind of weapons that you probably carried in your service, it makes people confused about what the military's role is and what they do. So I think you're very critical to who we are, to our future. Uh, we need to make investments in the families of the military, the people of our military, have tremendous respect for what you do. I do think we have to look at the military budget, not only because we are in such deep deficit, but because I think we have to construct the budget for the challenges ahead, not the challenges of the past. And that means, and often it's been the military that have first learned the new skills we need for the next decades ahead. So I think the military's increased its cyber capabilities. They've increased tactical weapons capabilities. Uh, they've learned more about asymmetric warfare in instead of maybe the old forms of warfare. So I think we have to be agile. We have to look to the future. Um, but I think bridging that military-civilian divide, making sure that we know what the appropriate roles are for all of the people who serve us in our communities is absolutely critical. But thank you so much for your service. And thank you for that answer. We're going to turn now to Kathleen. We have a caller on the line. Is Kathleen there? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. I'd like to follow up on Ambassador Sherman by thanking all three of you for your service and for your inspiration. You continue to keep Americans, particularly in this tough time right now, you keep Americans focused on what's important, and foreign policy is very important. So thank all three of you for that. Um, I would like to follow up on what, we, what I perceive as Donald Trump and Secretary Pompeo as gutting the State Department in their three and a half years here. Uh, how do you, or for any of you who would like to take this question, how important, how vital is it for, for the for Vice President, hopefully next President Biden, and uh, Senator Harris, Vice President Harris, to quickly, as quickly as possible, refill the or restore the State Department employees uh, both here abroad and at the Foreign Service Institute so we can you know, bring back these important relationships and in the mind of our allies, who do you think should be filling those shoes, uh, those shoes and those faces? People that are well-established diplomats or uh, sort of a different generation, who do you think will be most trustworthy to, uh, in the minds of our allies? Thank you very much again. Wow. Kathleen, great question. Thank you. I'm going to hand that over to Madam Secretary. Well, I think that it's absolutely essential that there are diplomats to do diplomacy. And we've talked about the importance of diplomacy and the State Department 
um, has been uh, really undermined in every single way um, through this administration. Um, frankly, I think uh, really beginning from the very big, you know, Secretary Tillerson, who came in and was doing reorganization without ever having understood it properly, and Pompeo, that was talking about swagger, uh, but I don't know, that I guess is his own swagger, but basically um, people have uh, been asked to leave, have been fired, uh, have not been defended when they have been uh, come up with what are the facts on a number of issues. Uh, we have done everything to discourage people from being in not just the Foreign Service, but the State Department generally, which also has civil servants um, and uh, people that are needed with their expertise. Um, and there has to be an awful lot of work done to or to really resurrect the State Department, it's also going to need funding. Um, Wendy was talking about budgets. The State Department budget, in comparison to the to DOD budget, is kind of a ridiculous comparison of, you know, like six hundred billion to thirty five billion or something like that. Um, and I do think, as a professor, I've been often asked by young people whether they should go to the State Department, and they said, you know, I don't want to go now because I disagree with the policies. The bottom line is they're not going to be making policy right away, and it's important to get young people in there and see an interesting career in the State Department. I also would be for um, entry, lateral entry, by those people that want to come in that have a variety of experiences that would be useful because uh, diplomacy and foreign policy now are uh, involve an awful lot of um, technical issues that require people with a variety of expertise. Uh, and I do think that is one of the major parts that has to happen. You can't do diplomacy without diplomats, and the State Department has totally taken it um, in every part of its body uh, the way it has been treated um, in the last uh, four years. You have teed up the final segment of the show, which has to do with the most asked question we got from dozens of people, variations on the same theme, Senator Murphy. Uh, Mary Jane Foster and Kathy Gambino were among those who asked this question. Fundamentally, it comes down to, can America regain our standing in the world, or is this damage that we're seeing permanent? Well, it is the most fundamental question. Um, and I do worry that there is some damage done to American credibility and influence that may not be able to be regained. And I think we have to be just honest about that. Look at what's happened at the WHO. Uh, literally within minutes of Donald Trump announcing that we were leaving the WHO, China stepped up and made a $2 billion commitment to global public health. Um, we'll rejoin the WHO um, uh, when uh, Vice President Biden is sworn in, knock on wood. Um, but China will already have exerted additional influence. They will occupy more positions. They will have more friends. And so it will be very difficult for us to try to uh, restore our influence and our credibility. Um, at the same time, um, the roadmap exists, um, but that roadmap will come through alliances. And so probably the most important thing for this next administration to do uh, is to reach out and rebuild, for instance, the transatlantic alliance. There is no way 
to try to rebut Chinese, the Chinese growing influence around the world unless we're making decisions together with the Europeans. There's no way to guarantee Ukraine's sovereignty or stand up for the Belarusian people if we aren't doing it together. Um, but then back to this question that uh, Wendy was beginning to answer, it is also about making sure that we have the capabilities in order to reassert a position of influence around the world. And I'll just leave you with one example of where some easy plus-ups to diplomacy can gain big rewards. But a year and a half ago, I was in Dublin um, and I was visiting Dublin for a number of reasons. But um, on that list was um, a decision that a big Irish telecom company was about to make on the future of its telecommunications backbone. And of course, it was Huawei and Chinese 5G uh, that was the top competitor. Well, not coincidentally, um, in the lead up to that decision, the Chinese had flooded Dublin with dozens of new diplomats just surrounding that country's capital in Chinese diplomacy to try to argue the case of their company. In our embassy, we had one guy, a, a military officer, who was charged with working the uh, anti-Huawei beat. There was no way we were going to ultimately win that fight, in large part because we just haven't um, provided the capabilities to American diplomacy abroad. Um, as Secretary Albright mentioned, we spend about 120th on diplomacy as we do on the military. We have more people who work in military grocery stores than we have diplomats. Um, we can't win these fights. We can't staff the next president to rebuild American credibility unless we make a recommitment to alliances, in, unless we choose to sell the American people on the importance of internationalism, and unless we rebuild the foreign policy toolkit, starting with the State Department and USAID. If we do those things, then yes, we have a shot, maybe at not regaining the position that America America held when Secretary Albright was in office, um, but uh, picking back up many of the pieces that have fallen onto the ground during the last three and a half years. Ambassador Sherman, how optimistic are you? Uh, again, people talk about how America's capacity has been hollowed out, is the way I think they put it, that we've got so many pressing problems here at home, uh, a health care system that doesn't work, criminal justice system, an economy that's cratered, the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's a very long list. How do we make this a priority going forward? Fundamentally, I'm a great believer in the United States of America and the American people. I think we are resilient people. I think we are entrepreneurial and innovative that when we put our minds to a task, if we really go at it, we can get it done. But I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you that I do think we are fighting for our democracy, whether it's whether the postal service, which is a service to each and of each one of us and the most popular institution in our country is being undermined, whether we are destroying our alliances and our relationships and partnerships around the world, whether we are hollowing out the State Department and the Pentagon and USAID, whether we are creating mistrust with our intelligence community, whether we are in fact not acknowledging the role of the Congress as an important voice in the decisions that we make. All of these things, if they are to go on for another four years, I think our very democracy is really at risk. I uh, 
try not to think about it. I try to have spent this summer trying to read some history in part because of the great debates we're having about finally coming to terms with the racial injustice in our country. We've been through really, really hard times before and I came of political age during the Vietnam War when we had assassinations of five leaders in our country, President Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. We had um, uh, students killed at Kent State, bombs by the weathermen in New York townhouses. Our country was incredibly divided. Uh, of course, we didn't have a coronavirus on top of it all, um, but it was a really hard time. But out of that time came a really strong belief in democracy and my generation was a very activist generation, believed in the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the end of the Vietnam War. So real change could happen. So I'm a great optimist, uh, but as I don't want to steal Madeleine Albright's brilliant line, uh, but I always do quote her. Um, she is an optimist who worries a lot, and I think that's a great uh, way to think about where we are in the world. But I must say, even to my dear friend, uh, Secretary Albright, to Senator Murphy, and to you, Jane, I really worry for our democracy if we have four more years of what we are currently living through. I think it is that serious. Uh, Vice President Biden calls it a, a real worry and concern for the soul of our nation, and I don't think that overstates the case. Secretary Albright, Reliable sources report that you've already gone on the record. You're volunteering to help reconstitute uh, our, our reputation around the world. You've signed up for the next, the next chapter, whatever that is. And so we're going to have you answer the final video question of this broadcast. Hello, I'm Tal from Washington, Connecticut. I've always felt that one of the great strengths of the United States is what we represent in the world. What would you say to people in other countries who live in more restrictive societies, who no longer feel they can look to us as a source of hope or a model for what could be? Thank you. Well, Secretary Albright. let me say that um, I was asked recently to describe myself in six words. Worried optimist, problem solver, grateful American. I'm a naturalized American. I came here when I was 11 years old, having fled first fascism and then communism. Uh, and I remember my father saying the following thing, that people were very nice when we came to the United States. And they said, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you? And when will you become a citizen? And he would say also, and I take this um, as really the truth in every way, that we are resilient and determined. and But it's nothing is gonna happen if we don't work at it and recognize the fact that there are various aspects that have gone totally astray. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Um, the, this election, I think, is the most important one ever. By the way, my first vote was for John Kennedy in Chicago in 1960. So I had, I think, an important voice then. But the bottom line is this one is absolutely essential because we are being watched as to what we're doing and we need, we cannot put up with four more years of this or there will be no way to restore our reputation. I also do think 
that we need to recognize that not everything has gone right and to be humble about the things that need to be worked on. And um, I'm very glad you asked that question because one of the things that I'm counting on is your generation. Uh, there is not a book or speech that's ever been said that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So one of my favorite quotes is when he said, the older I am, the younger are my teachers. And I do think that your generation has to play a strong role in this in terms of activity and not taking anything for granted. But it is going to be work. Um, the social contract needs to be uh, reset. And it's based on the fact that the people gave up some of their individual rights to have the state take care of various issues that it must in terms of providing um, safety and a, a variety of infrastructure and different things. But the role that the individual has to take, we have a responsibility uh, and a privilege to get out there and vote and work hard. We all have to do it together. We can't just say this election doesn't happen or, uh, or doesn't matter or uh, what are the things that we can do? And I have volunteered. I will do anything because I am a grateful American uh, and uh, this country has st been strengthened by the diversity of our population, by our willingness to work hard and to understand that we need to have a rule of law, a press that is not called the enemy of the people, that we can't set one group against another and we have to find out what separates us so we can talk to each other with respect. And I look forward to the fact that that may happen after January, after November, uh, and then that we will have a new leadership in January that all of us can work with and be supportive and know that it's going to take a lot of work. I think we should add two more words to your self-description, national treasure. The Before we give Senator Murphy the final, the final word. Um, I do have to ask about your pin, Secretary Albright, because obviously that's a stunning yeah. pin. And what does it mean? Well, it'll take me a minute. I did say that I spent World War II in London. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, um, and he was there with the government in exile. And he broadcast on over BBC, and I was little, and I would listen to BBC every night. And they began every night with a kettle drum roll of the first notes from Beethoven's fifth, da 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 dum, which in Morse code is V for victory. And so I do think this is the kind of time that needs us to fight and a V for victory. And uh, that's why I'm wearing the pin. But thanks for asking. And also before we break away, great story. I do want to make note that you all three have books, and I think everybody should know about them. So I'm going to start with Secretary Albright. Your seventh book is currently out. It is called Hell and Other Destinations. It's a 21st century memoir. And Ambassador Sherman, as you mentioned earlier, you have a great title, Not for the Faint of Heart. Your book is out now in paperback. And Senator Murphy... We can get those pre-orders in starting today because his book is going to be coming out very soon. I think September 1st is what I saw on Amazon, but it is coming out. It's called The Violence Inside Us, which is about a huge problem in our nation, one of Senator Murphy's signature issues, which is the gun violence epidemic. So please, everybody, still time for summer reading. Those are the books. 
Senator Murphy, I am going to close with you because you've been quoted as saying that you're 100 percent sure that unless America is seen as a force for good, the world is not going to change. We've just seen the energy, the the civil, the, the civil unrest, the peaceful protests that in the wake of George Floyd's deaths, with people rising up and demanding change and, and being seen as a force for good around the world, inspiring people around the world. You have two sons, Owen and Ryder. And, and if I counted correctly, I think Owen should be able to vote in about six years, something right. like that. By the time he's ready to vote, paint a picture of what you see America representing in the world. Well, first of all, I'm just absolutely humbled to be able to share uh, this afternoon with um, two of my heroes, Wendy Sherman and Secretary Albright. And thank you, Jane, for convening these conversations. I, I think they're very important, especially now when we feel a little disconnected from each other. Um, I think to the point that Secretary Albright was making, um, we have a conversation about what American exceptionalism is. Um, but at the heart of this grand experiment um, is a combination um, that is without equal in the history of the world. Never before has a civilization lasted this long, committed to these two fundamentally revolutionary ideas. Um, one, um, people from all different backgrounds, from all different faiths, religions, races, living together under one big collective roof. And second, a commitment to self-determination. The idea that there's no one person that makes decisions for us. We make decisions about how we order society together. Democracy and multiculturalism, that is the foundation of the American experiment. And it is what has drawn other nations to us decade after decade. And as you mentioned, it has been our struggles, in fact, some of our darkest times that have actually provided a light to the world. It was the anti-apartheid protesters in South Africa, the solidarity movement in Poland um, that saw in the civil rights movement a reason why they should strive for democracy, a reason why um, America showed the rest of the world that we had the capacity to grapple with some of the most meddlesome, troublesome, difficult issues of our time. And so what I've thought a lot about this summer is that this sort of second civil rights movement that is happening, um, if we do it right, if we actually make change, um, may be part of what resells America to the rest of the world, shows uh, the globe that um, in the middle of all of this unrest, we can have a difficult conversation about reimagining this country and doing better. And so when we think about how we rebuild American credibility, yes, it is staffing the State Department. It is about building a new global strategy about confronting China. Um, but it's also just about being better here at home and understanding that even in our political struggles comes an advertisement for this wild, revolutionary model, um, multiculturalism next to democracy. Uh, and so I hope that my kids get to see this struggle play out here in the United States. And I hope that they get to see over the next four years uh, how it helps us rebuild American influence and protect America abroad. Now, I'm the one who's humbled. I don't even know. <laughs> Rarely am I speechless. But I want to just say to all three of you, thank you for so generously donating your time and being with us today. 
And I'd also just like to mention, I mentioned this before we went on the air, uh, to the memory of my late mother-in-law, who was the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times, Flora Lewis. I didn't understand what she was saying most of the time. I think if I had talked to the three of you first, I would have had a better idea. But I want to thank you all so much. I want to thank you out there for joining us as well. We hope you'll be with us next time because we'll have with us not one, but two Nobel laureates, as well as the founder of the iconic chain Shake Shack. We're going to be talking about where the economy is headed with New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, economist Joseph Stiglitz, and restaurateur Danny Meyer. The live virtual town hall will take place on September 20th, and you can learn more and register to join at conversationsonthegreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is Jay Holt.